0: This is Smash Mouth Richie Taylor. This is First Class Jet Rooker. This is totally Philippe, one half of the National Classics. This is Tyson Baxter. This is Royce Chambers. Hey, this is one half of the MCW Tag Team Champions, Mitch Waterman here. And you're listening. And you're listening. And you're listening, and you're listening to MCWY. 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 Welcome
1: to MCWY, the official podcast of Melbourne City Wrestling, brought to you by our friends at Manscaped. My name's Simon Tackler, my co-host is Nims Azor, and Nims, we have a certified legend joining us on this week's show. We've been trying to get
2: him on for so long, and we've finally done it. Are you pumped? I am very pumped because it took a while to get an internet connection down at Bastard HQ, but we managed to do it, thankfully, especially with Homecoming just coming up on the horizon. We thought we have to get a hold of Crackerjack, the Australian legend, the man whose career was ended in 2017 by Lockie Hendricks in one of the most brutal matches to ever take place in the Thornbury Theater. Thankfully, though, him leaving the ring has been pretty good for us as fans because he's moved into other roles with the company. That's right, he's helping
1: to move the whole industry forward. He's one of the trainers at the MCW Academy. Of course, he's also one of the voices of Melbourne City Wrestling at the commentary desk. And let's face it, if we're on the eve of MCW homecoming, it is only appropriate that we talk to one of the true icons and a cornerstone of MCW. He's the one and only Cracker Jack. Crackers, welcome to MCW Wired.
0: Hi everyone, thank you for having me. I uh, I wear a lot of hats hearing that introduction. (laughs) How do I find the
2: time? Well, Crackers, let's get started all the way from the beginning because first off, it's it's an honor to have you on MCW uh, wide for the first time. I'm sorry it took so long to get you here, but hey, yeah, things happen. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You're picking relevant <laughs> people instead of me. What the hell?
2: <laughs> but look, Matt, let's take it back to your debut in 1999. Now, the wrestling industry is a kind of streamlined now. It's very, there's a path to get there. You know, if you want to be a wrestler, you got to, You go to an academy you go to a training school yeah you do this you do that but back in 1999 it was very different i mean it was still relatively underground yes it was huge with the attitude era and the monday night wars and you know t-shirts and everything in in shops everywhere but australian wrestling still relatively underground how is it like breaking in in a business that was so huge overseas but so tiny here in australia
0: you cannot overstate the difference the internet has made to everything like the promotional model for the indies that was sort of still running in melbourne when i started following shows around the mid to late 90s um you know all the ads were just like photocopied at your local library and collaged together analog style and then just put up in pizza stores um there were like you know the sort of the message boards and forums were starting up and there was one that was kind of um, for uh, American wrestling fans that had like an Aussie wrestling board, uh, I had to meet an actual person in the world who's like, I can introduce you to a wrestler who can introduce you to a wrestler and then you can go and learn. But as I was coming in, it was a very odd time in Melbourne wrestling because it's just starting to become just uh, egalitarian and everyone started running their own shows and it was sort of previous to that, very much in the hands of the the sort of the rem- the remnants of the festival holidays who were still in business and then sort of as I was coming at the start of, uh, of like 99 it's like I can run a show well I can run a show and it, it really changed everything
1: and at that time though because it was so you know prevalent sort of in the mainstream for for that era again like Nim said you'd see t-shirts everywhere it was on yeah. you know normal just broadcast tv and all over Foxtel was there a sense of like confidence at the time though that it was maybe the start of a wrestling boom in Australia and then you know for different reasons it might not have happened as quickly as you know it might have felt like it could have because of how big wrestling was at the time
0: it was a very strange time then like I think the local and the indie product always does well when the mainstream products doing well there's just it's it's more in the public consciousness it's cooler in general it's in the media and then people are like oh well look Nitro's not coming to my town I'll check out my local Pittsburgh indie or whatever And I'm assuming that's the same everywhere. So I started going to indie shows around Melbourne in the late 90s and, you know, a lot of NWO shirts and stuff like that. You know, it it was hot and that kind of helped. But I don't think, like, I wasn't sort of close to management back in those days or anything. I was just like a wet-behind-the-ears rookie. Uh, But I don't think it was really considered, oh, this is us. We're we're going up next or anything like that. Uh, Like there's, you know, when you're coming in, you always hear, oh, it's TV's coming, we're going to be making it through to the next level or anything. But uh, where it was at, the industry was at kind of going into the pandemic, I think it's sort of, it was about as good as it had been since the festival holidays.
1: Now, and also on that too, because I remember going to shows at that time too. That was the first time like I was just old enough to go to a live wrestling show and growing up a fan, it was crazy to see it live. But there were shows in all different types of venues. I remember going to see shows at, you know, street festivals where I grew up in Fairfield and seeing the shows at Crown Casino at the All-Star Cafe and then shows in Epping and and sort of all around the state and all around the city. Mm. look back at those memories fondly, you know, sort of wrestling in these sort of strange uh, venues to different audiences who may have been, you know, maybe they were hardcore fans, maybe they were just wandering by and just caught a bit of the show. (laughs) Are there any memories that stand out?
0: uh look if you were at the fairfield street festival in 99 2000 you would have seen me debut i would have been uh one of a handful of uh rookies who were training at um ricky diamond's dungeon of excellence and uh, <laughs> i would have had my uh, battle royal or royal rumble debut or something at that yep. we're all like it's like 38 degrees the canvas is so hot that when you go down you can't sell because you'll melt onto it so you can get up straight <laughs> away and stuff we're all getting skin cancer and sleeper holes <laughs> But uh, yeah, so that, that was kind of like a way to get on board. But yeah, it's, I, don't, I think it's still a bunch of odd little venues. Like I know we're, we're all very comfortable in the uh, prestigious Thornbury Theatre, but it was really only a few years ago that um, Melbourne City Wrestling was still doing that Melbourne Indie thing where you're sort of hopping around to a different venue every month. And you're trying to say, hey, guys, thanks for coming out to Tullamarine. Maybe you'd like to see us in Oakley next week. And everyone in the past like, I'm on the drive and you wouldn't see them for three months until you were back there so it was still like that for a giant chunk of mcw's career
2: obviously we now we've got mcw like you can go from show to show we've we've talked about this with like guys like brooksy and slakes and even the Brat pack that you know they get a following because people regularly will go to the Thornbury theater they'll regularly go to such and such but it, it, it's it's like you just mentioned you'd be bouncing around left and right, center how as a wrestler do you evolve and build because so simon's talking about seeing you at street festivals i saw you i think it was at like in burwood uh a few years ago uh, teaming up with mike burr yes and that's a completely different promotion so you're bouncing from a different audience to a different audience to a different audience that might not have seen you at those shows there that might not even seen you at all or know who you are yeah how do you sort of adjust that because there's not a lot of jobs where you go in and it's day one all the
0: time yeah, it makes a, a huge difference. And it was, it was very hard within the one company to be able to tell coherent storylines because you weren't in front of the same people all the time. And so MCW was sort of getting in the, like you always had Dragonfly going on, but I think it's uh, for those who've never been, it's like a Chinese theater restaurant. Um, the food is Chinese, not the theater. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> just to be clear, it was like um, the Hong Kong opera. But uh, yeah, well, it's really difficult because you you end up putting this disproportionate amount of time in. You weren't there for it, but at this other show, an hour's drive away, a whole bunch of stuff happened that's relevant today and people don't care. And it's, you end up putting all your labor in that. As an individual, the internet's changed everything. And I've, uh, I've copped behind the scenes heat for this, this theory about uh, the way the internet's changed with wrestlers because promoters don't like it when uh, wrestlers become <laughs> empowered. Um, but now that we've all got our own social media, that kind of becomes your hub to interact directly with the audience. So, you know, if it was now, and you guys were just getting into wrestling, you would see me at the Corner Hotel for Wrestling Rock. And then you'd see me at Thornbury for um, Melbourne City Wrestling or something like that. But you would follow my Facebook page and that would give context to everything. And it would mean when you go to see me somewhere else, you're like, how come he's being a jerk? Oh, okay, he's a jerk here, and stuff. So that, that one-to-one contact has really changed Obviously, you know, without an actual show to wrestle at, we've got no product to sell besides pitch the bus and our underwear. But um, <laughs> it certainly changed our capacity to have like a, a centralized continuity that revolves around the individual wrestler, rather than whatever building people happen to have come into on that night. Yeah, and you've taken
1: advantage of that and really used that over the past few years, creating online content to sort of keep Crackerjack at front of mind, regardless of if there's a show that week which I think has become, you know, sort of what wrestling is now for so many talents around the world. That is how they promote themselves and keep themselves relevant, especially in terms of, like, you know, their character. Now that you're in the position to sort of pass on advice at the MCW Academy, is that something you really stress, that it's not about just what you do in the ring, but take advantage of social media to get across what you are or who you are?
0: I think it makes a difference. I think, um, like, it's not a uniquely wrestling thing that's celebrities, are capable of communicating directly with their audience. Um, I was watching a documentary about Britney Spears, of all people, where they were talking about how social media in some ways has kind of disempowered the paparazzi because you can now, like the stars themselves, will share their private life with you. It doesn't need to be snagged through a window or something like that. So it's, it's certainly altered that. I think I've enjoyed having my own centralised canon through my own outlets, And then I, you know, that becomes part of where I work. Um, It's certainly part of what I teach the students that I have at the NCW Academy, but it's not sort of at the core of my wheelhouse. So we have, you know, digital media specialists who sort of pass that on to the students who are better equipped than me. I'm more about, I don't know, uh, consistency of character and authenticity. That's kind of like my wheelhouse.
2: Talking about that though, so now you are transitioning out of the ring. We obviously did see uh, your final match at Final Battle a couple of years I ago. I transitioned
0: real hard, out of the ring. Real, like so hard it's been a struggle to get back in.
2: Yeah, notice how I danced around that one, but uh. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. It didn't me for a second.
2: But now that you are, you know, as you said, you're a trainer at the MCW Academy. You've taken a role in commentary. How much is it of a sea change, if it will, because Yes, you're still within the wrestling business, but it's completely different. It almost might be a brand new job being a commentator or being a trainer to actually being an in-ring performer. I mean, how have you adjusted to that
0: change? Uh, The biggest difference, I think, when you move from being an active competitor is that a lot of the work you do, uh, even when you're still performing, it's not as much about you. And, you know, anyone who is wrestling will kind of be like, shouldn't be all about you, you selfish asshole. But it still kind of is. It still kind of revolves around you. Whereas, you know, when you're commentating, it's it's not my fight, it's not my agency, these aren't my aspirations or rivalries. I'm just there to articulate what's going on to our audience. And we've got pretty defined roles at the commentary desk. We've got, you know, Lindsay Howells is like the middleman who tees us up. Andy Coin goes to the effort of working out whose names are what and what moves they do and where they've been and what their history is. And my jam is really uh, – it's a psychological one. I use the same techniques I use to express my own ideas and promos, and I basically go up to the talent before matches, and I'm like, you, why do you want to win besides the money? What is your objective? What's your problem with this guy? What's your problem with her? What's wh- – you know, what do you want? What are your motivations? And then because you can only – glean so much of that from watching someone fight, I help kind of give our audience a window into what our wrestlers are thinking. Well, how
2: hard is it for you? Because I've been to many a show at the Thornby Theatre where I'm just almost transfixed by what's going on in the ring, like, you know, uh, and I won't talk to whoever's sitting next to me until the intermission. As a comment, as a commentator, you're there front and center. How do you sort of stop yourself going? This is actually a pretty damn good match. I'm gonna it's, just kick um, back.
0: Oh, I don't. You know, anyone's watching the shows and you know, continue, you know, watches the, the shows as they come out next. Right, so, uh, I do. I get excited. I talk about how good this is. I'm like, that was me. I would totally pull these tights over the back of my feet on the ropes,
2: or whatever. Or
0: you, 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 you armchair strategize. I mean, I'm sure that's no different from anyone who's competed and, and stepped behind the mic or just not been involved in the industry and just sits at home watching it talks about how they do it better. So that's totally part of it. Yeah, it's like sometimes it feels really good to not be in there and to just be watching as well. And that's been something that's kind of factored into my do I really want to come back process? Because, you know, you stop, but the industry keeps going. The talent keeps evolving. New competitors come in. People find you know new and exciting and innovative ways to drop each other on their heads and you get to watch and go "Hmm, maybe i'm glad i'm not in this right now so it's a very weird uh relationship and it's and it feels like you've
1: really made the most of it and obviously felt comfortable in that role obviously the experience in the ring lends itself to that but this is a role that's existed in wrestling for a really long time when a you know a competitor takes their talents to the commentary desk was there anyone you look to as sort of an inspiration or, you know, an influence in terms of that role?
0: Yeah, Jim Courier comment, uh, commentating <laughs> with the uh, Australian Open. Um, and, you know, I think wrestling probably took cues from other sports when they first started putting former wrestlers on the mic. Uh, like, you know, you sort of go back and watch footage from the 50s and it's sort of like a bunch of dry little men in suits right. and stuff like that. And uh, I don't know who the, like, Jesse's the fir- Jesse the Body Ventura is the first really colourful talent turned commentator that I can think of, or well, maybe Gorilla. but I'm sure, you know, more educated wrestling historians than me can rattle off people who may be doing it in the 60s and 70s. Um, but a lot of those jobs in wrestling get filled by wrestlers because they're the ones who have the, the real-time experience. Um, some of the best referees I've worked with used to be wrestlers. And it just makes it so easy because they understand what's going on. They know what it's like to be a wrestler in that situation. They know what sort of stuff wrestlers try to get up to and pull. Um, and it's, it's sort of the same with managers as well. A lot of uh, wrestling managers. I mean, look at Bobby Heenan, wrestler turned manager, turned commentator. And he starting in wrestling combined with his tremendous talent is what made him so good at those other few jobs. Bobby is the proper answer to my question, by the way.
1: Valentine's Day is upon us fellas make sure you're ready for wherever the night may take you our friends at Manscaped the global leaders in men's below the waist grooming are here to tell you that you need to use the best tools for the job so you can be ready for anything on that special day two million men are already trusting Manscaped products to groom make sure you're one of them because we are
2: before the good people at Manscaped came around, we'd be using trimmers and razors and whatnot. Down there would just look like the aftermath of a Hell in a Cell match. You'd feel <laughs> the bumps. You'd feel the pain. But thankfully, thanks to Manscaped, those days are a thing of the past. I mean, your girl can't think of what to get you this year. Tell her to get the gift that's for you and for her. The best way to get started is with the Manscaped Perfect Package 3.0. It's full of the best products to keep you looking, smelling, and feeling nice oh yeah the perfect package 3.0 is led by their revolutionary
1: third generation lawnmower 3.0 trimmer which has advanced skin safe technology and features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce those grooming accidents it's also waterproof which prevents a mess on the bathroom floor and in the sink and my wife sure hates that especially when it's time for Cupid to shoot his arrow and let's be real we've smelled the worst down there before that's why i'm thankful for their crop preserver and crop
2: reviver these products keep our boys from sweating smelling and sticking oh and these products they smell good their manly scent is attractive and will help set the mood if you know what i mean now the perfect package will also come with a pair of manscaped boxes that'll keep your junk feeling fresh all day now these are some heavy duty awesome boxes manscapes high performance anti-chafing boxes They are easily the comfiest boxes I've ever had. And they're taking things to the next level now. You can complete
1: your grooming game with their new refined cologne signature scent by Manscaped with the same signature scent that's in all Manscaped formulas. And trust me, I know you can't smell it right now over a podcast, but they smell amazing. This cologne is a perfect complement to the
2: collection. This is the perfect package your perfect package and you can get your hands on it by getting 20% off and free shipping with the code mcw21 at manscaped.com your balls will thank you so remember get 20% off and free shipping with the code mcw21 at manscaped.com 20% off free shipping can't make it any more clearer use the code mcw21 at manscaped.com and have a very very happy valentine's day from our good mates at manscaped Looking at that and all of the the intricacies that you need to know about the wrestling business before even stepping through the doors, as an MCW trainer, when there is someone that comes into the academy, how do you make sure that they quite know what they're getting into? Because for a lot of people, while it is still pretty well-known, what goes on within the squared circle, some people might think, all right, I'll go to the Academy on Monday and by Saturday, I'll be at the (laughs) Thornbury Theatre. I'm
0: going to be, right? I've already got a name. Um, Managing expectations is is pretty important. Um, I mean, I probably have weirder conversations and like have to drop wake-up calls, less with people who've joined the Academy and more with like fans who reach out. And especially as a guy who's, you know, a big part of my body of work involved getting my hands pretty bloody. And so what you do is you get the people who like hardcore coming up and they're like, Oh, Carl, mate, I want to be a wrestler too. I don't give i I'll just sit fire on myself and stab people. And I'm like, the last thing I want is to be in a ring with this person. Like, what do I have to do? I don't care. I'll kill anyone. And you're like, well, first you should do a thousand squats every day. But, and that usually scares them away because there's uh, you know, being tough and willing to be set on fire doesn't necessarily translate into the whole uh, suite of skills. You need to be a competent professional wrestler. Um, within the school, it, it's not too bad. Um, I mean, I mainly focus on the, you know communication, talking, gift of the gab uh, type stuff in my training. And so I like to fold in all the other kind of philosophies about what it's like to be a wrestler in that. And just make sure people know that if you come into our industry and act like a raging dickhead, the industry ideally has its own what's the immunity system that will kind of push you back out again in saying that are there people who come to
1: you from a training sort of standpoint even the mcw academy and maybe prior to that too have there been people who come to you with sort of no background in wrestling and maybe not really an athletic background either who you weren't sure about who did end up surprising you who have sort of done more than what you may have expected at first maybe we don't have to name names but does that sometimes happen where Uh, someone might not look like they're going to turn out
0: yeah I mean you do get proven wrong um and you know when we get new recruits at the academy it's always like oh my god one of them's actually jacked already and it's quite exciting because you know it's an aesthetic business it's an athletic business you need to be strong and tough um it's a bit different than how it used to be when it was much more gate kept and if you weren't Six foot five and a former linebacker at the NFL, that people wouldn't even look at you. Now, you know, we've seen guys who don't necessarily come from a giant monster man background and they can still main event and win the world title at WrestleMania. So it's kind of changed what the expectations are as far as what, what a successful wrestler can be. So I'm usually not too judgmental. Um, I remember certainly in terms of one of my peers who started at the same time, who's, you know, occasionally makes his way back into is... Uh, Melbourne wrestler called Cletus. And I remember when he started at the same time as me, I'm like, oh my God, he's tiny. He's tiny. He's going to get squished. He's going to die. And 20 years later, he's still going strong and popping off shooting star presses and stuff like that. So, so, yeah, I don't like to say never say never. And when I do, it's more likely to be related to uh, attitude issues or um, a, a cognitive incapacity to understand what we do than it is because they're not tall enough or they're just squishy or something.
2: So in saying that, how much pressure do you put on yourself? Because you're always your your own harshest critic as a trainer, when you pass on your knowledge to someone else, like, so we'll just say, you know, uh, Academy member A over here has gone on to do this always, no matter where their career goes, will always have, they were trained by Cracker Jack attached to them. Mm -hmm. How important is that for you that they actually, you know, uphold their standards that you've set out for them? Because your name will always be linked to their careers.
0: Um, well, I mean, the most obvious example I can think of that is uh, helping to mentor lover boy Lockie Hendricks and having him bash my brains and end my career. So I don't know if that's a, a condemnation of my training or a winning endorsement of how good it is because I, I made the guy that killed me. Um, in general, I think less in terms of it coming back on me. I mean, I think you can train someone, but they're always listening to other people. They're always, you know, training with their peers, um, they go out into the world and they start wrestling different places and pick up different things. So there's never like a, a one-to-one, oh, uh, Lance Storm train that person. So they're a carbon copy and representation of everything Lance Storm is. All you can do is start someone off. And then they go into So it's like a child. You know, you can only do so much and then you put them in front of TV and they a bunch of different stuff that was not your plan. So it's not a bubble. So you can't see all that. I'm really more concerned with manifesting the Australian wrestling scene that I feel should exist and then trying to um, proliferate those philosophies through the students that I teach, because I can only do so much. I'm only one person. It's got to be something that lives on after me. And so that's a big part of what I try and do. Does that make sense?
2: Does that answer your question? Uh, in, in more ways than one. <laughs> Excellent. You're yeah. used to that. That's <laughs> a long form answer. To my well, I want to follow that up because Lockie
1: Hendricks spoke so highly about that experience and that match in particular and what it's meant for his career moving forward. That whole run as the world's friendliest bastards teaming up, mentoring Lockie, and then the way it ended the Four Corners of Hell match, MCW final battle 2017. I mean, this legit- legitimately one of the best matches I've ever seen live. It was the end of your in-ring career at the time, Uh, an emotional match, extremely violent, unlike anything we would normally see at MCW. It meant so much for Lockie. What has it meant for you looking back at it four years later?
0: Um, It was pretty enormous at the time. And as it got closer and closer, I think I um, worked myself into a shoot, so to speak, and almost became overwhelmed by the enormity of it. And like, it didn't help that in the weeks leading up, I was handcrafting all the weapons for it. So I was like building the bed of nails, twining the wire, sanding down things and stuff. So I I lived it so deeply, Uh, even editing the video packages and stuff, it was sort of all consuming. And then in the wake of it, you're sort of not quite numb. But there's, there is an emptiness in the wake of something huge like that. Like I've delivered other you know works and done big things that have kind of loomed. But that one, I think, um, what makes it odd for me is that on the day, I was, even on the day, I was numb. Like I went into that final match on no sleep whatsoever. I think I made it a half an hour in the morning and then pow, filled my car up with sharp things and then hit the road for a two hour drive to the Thornbury Theatre. Um, and, like, I must have pounded, like, three serves of pre-workout, and even before the match, I couldn't get a buzz on, like, I'm jogging up and down the steps backstage, and I felt like my feet were sinking into sand. Like, it was very odd. And even in that moment where, you know, I'm not totally goofy, and like that, that sort of orchestral piece is playing, and I'm lost, and I'm covered in blood, and, like, you know, 600 people are chanting thank you crackers, I didn't really feel anything for a few days, and then it sort of came to me over the the,
1: the aftermath. Are you so proud it, of the, the relationship and the work you and Lockie did together?
0: I'm proud of the the arc, I think, and the story it told. And, you know, it's, it's hard to tell stories in independent wrestling because we look to how stories are told on Raw and SmackDown and it's like a colossal media entity with, like, you know, TV and ads and constant coverage and it's just... They do, there, there are so many mechanisms by which they can make sure the audience is following the story. Whereas you think, you know, with us, we see the fans once a month, your segment is what, like 10, 15 minutes of an entire show. Um, and then they don't see you again for ages. And you throw a video up on the internet and people interact with that and stuff, but it's, it's hard to get through. And then you start telling that story of, the longer you're trying to tell that story, the harder it becomes as well, and it was like a year, an eighteen-month story really, and a year's story from when I knew where it was going. Um, and so it can be really tricky to sort of keep it and get people to get it, and then to sort of stand there at the end of it and look out and realize, oh, people actually they followed it, they understand the significance, it's it's landed, uh, and that was quite striking. But it was extremely hard to do on the way. I felt like I was sort of, you know, aggressively defending the rudder on the way there and someone would be like, oh, we're thinking of changing. No, it's off, you'll ruin it, stay away. We're doing it my way. And I, I know I heard a few people and put noses out of joint on that run on the way through because I knew if I wasn't bloody minded and stubborn and rigid and intransigent then it wouldn't have been that and I would have potentially ended my career for nothing.
2: We've spent a lot of time talking about what you're doing outside of the ring now in terms of your role in commentary and as a trainer. You've also had an incredibly decorated career inside the ring too. And one thing I want to touch on is you were also from that era where, you know, we'd have guest stars come from say ex WWE guys, maybe a former WCW legend an ECW guy. And we still see that to this day. I mean, just, as recently as two years ago we had will osprey come down here yes. pete dunn taking on sleek and so all of these guys you've been in the ring with a lot of former wwe talent and other you know quote unquote well-known guys yes how do you craft a match with someone like that like so, so do you would you say especially back in the day because it's not like you can i don't know jump on a zoom call with hardcore holly and be like so guys what do you want to <laughs> what do you want to do during the match
0: yeah you're right it's uh it's a bit different now and I, mcw and local wrestling in general sense of reaching more rising stars rather than past stars and i think that's probably because thanks to things like the internet and streaming and stuff people know who these guys are like they have a, like i wrestled man man pondo in the dragonfly theater and the only fans who turned up and heard of him were juggalos and stuff <laughs> because i got a newsletter like written on paper sent out to them by icp and stuff and that's how they knew or you knew them from tv whereas now you know, Will Ospreay comes out and, you know, all these people know him because they followed him in progress, like even pre-New Japan, which didn't really happen until after he started coming here. Um, He had a name. So that sort of changed a bit the the weight of those stars. Um, It's all on the day. I used to really stress about wrestling someone international. I'm like, oh my God, they've been at WrestleMania and I'm going to wrestle them and stuff. And you worry about making mistakes and screwing up. And then after a certain point, I'm like, hang on a second. Like you talk to them and they've got, you know, yes, I was at WrestleMania. But also here's a gym I wrestled in against a guy who wasn't a wrestler in you know in front of 20 parked cars like a driving and stuff. And their horror, their worst experience is so much worse than anything it would be with me. And so I sort of changed from stressing about it to, oh, hang on, this this Yankee a-hole being paid nine times more than me. If this match sucks, it's on him, not me. <laughs> All right. I'm the one getting the local paid. I'm gonna turn up and I'm gonna do my shtick and protect my brain, because I'm the was who's going to be playing here next week, he can come out and do his thing. And, you know, it, it's on him to make the match good. And that's what sort of took a lot a a of load off, because often you're anxious, and then I'll be standing next to, like, Steve Carino or something, and he'll be, like, so cool because he's done a billion matches and so many of them have been disasters in much and stuff. So they're, they're just so relaxed. It, it really takes a lot. So that's my big thing whenever I'm counselling a youngling lady who's about to wrestle an international for the first time. I'm like, you are so far from the worst person I've ever wrestled. And if this guy's worth their money, they can carry you even if you have a stroke halfway through the match. You'll be fine.
1: If you had to pick one of those international names who surprised you in a good way, like maybe great to work with, the match turned out even better than you expected that you were put in there with, is there someone that comes to mind?
0: I was a bit surprised by Trent Seven because I didn't know anything about him, uh, which is a testament to my ignorance as a (laughs) wrestler. But I found out I was wrestling him at... um, the 2017 NCW tournament, and I'm like, Oh, I just heard British wrestler, and I thought, Oh my god, he's gonna be like Mark Rollable Rocco, he's gonna be the master of mat work. I'm gonna look like a, a stiff klutz. And then I watched him, and I'm like, Oh, okay, he's 80% m- the star strokes and jerking around. Cool, I can do this. <laughs> this is easy, so that was pleasant. Um, hardcore Holly was a bit of a worry because, um He's a tough guy. I was always, it was weird for me because not many people, like everyone likes hardcore Holly, but no one's one's like, he's my favorite wrestler. (laughs) But I was like, oh my God, he was like one of my favorite guys who never made it to being world champion. So I was like totally excited. But also he's a gruff son of a bitch. You know, it was only a year or so after he'd um, duffed up that dopey kidney on tough enough for not taking wrestling seriously enough. And you know, when you're the hardcore guy, I'll take it back. When you're the hardcore guy, You often get put with other hardcore guys when you travel to a promotion. But the terrifying thing is, their hardcore guy isn't necessarily a trained wrestler. He could be some hack who doesn't care about getting mutilated. And so I knew that was probably hardcore Holly's experience as well. And so he comes here and he's like, You're wrestling. Someone goes, You're wrestling that guy. And I'm covered in scars. And he's never seen me on TV. He would easily assume I was another backyard junket wrestler. And so I had to come up and go, Oh, look. We're going to have a street fight. If that's okay with you, sir, I just want you to assure you that I'm not going to be clumsy or you're not going to get hurt. And he was like, that sounds great. And then some ring crew monkey turns up with a barbed wire chair and says, Oh, we built this chair for the match pop. He's like, We're not using that. I'm like, You're yeah, not using that. Get out of here, kid. You're making angry. You're the shit out of me angry. So, yeah, that was, I, I think my most surprising international experience was I don't know, like wrestling low over in Perth many, many years ago. I think partly because I survived but also um, he kind of mauled everyone he wrestled and they were tough guys like tougher than me like Chris Bice and David Storm and he kind of ate him alive and I was the only guy who sort of got out and I think gave him as much as he gave me because I just looked him in the eyes for half of the match and it kept slowing him down and on the flip side
1: is there anyone from the local scene maybe over the years because you've been in the ring with virtually everyone maybe someone who's maybe missed some of the these peaks of Australian wrestling maybe someone who doesn't come to mind. Is there someone who surprised you working with that maybe didn't get the, uh, maybe the attention they deserved, who stands out to you like this person was great, but maybe they don't get the credit.
0: Like an unsung hero. I think um, there are sort of a handful of guys who just were at the wrong time. And, you know, at the age of just about 42 trying to come back into wrestling, I'd say I came in at the wrong time and would have been much better if I'd started four or five years ago in terms of the opportunities. You know, not that I didn't squander the opportunities I had, but there'd be a whole suite of new opportunities I could have squandered as a young man. Uh but there were lots of guys who were sort of coming in, in the late 90s who just they were just the wrong time. And then by the time the scene kicked off and there were places to work that consistently through several several hundred people where you'd be taken care of. They were already kind of hurt on the way out. Like anyone from my generation will remember Spike Steele. He was an amazing wrestler, um, like very influential in a short window, hugely talented, but just I don't know, didn't last long enough to be in the scene to work in a place like NCW, so it didn't happen. Uh, Steve Frost is another one from that generation who was an absolute machine, beat Christ out of people, um, but missed that window. So, yeah, in terms of people who are around now, I don't know, because you never know who's still going to break through and, and make it and be a guy.
2: So looking at that laundry list of names that you've been in, you've shared the ring with, uh, in fact, the the matches that you've been in, you've been in ballroom brawls, you've been in ladder matches, you've been in three-way dances, you've been in heavyweight title matches, ladder matches, the list could, it'd be quicker to list the matches that you haven't been a part of out of all of those names, who are some of your favorite opponents? Because, you know, Some of the guys that you've shared the ring with have gone on to do some fantastic stuff and still do to this day in international companies. We see what Gino Gambino has been doing in New Japan. We see Buddy Murphy, Matt Silver, is doing in the WWE right now. We're seeing Slex. Well, we're about to see Slex play his trade in Ring of Honor. He's had a couple of matches there too. All of these guys you've shared the ring with and such a variety
0: of them as well. All gone on to be more famous than (laughs) the land and (laughs) attributes. Really good. So what happened? I screwed up! <laughs> right, that's what happened. I threw it away on Melbourne. Anyway, please go on with this painful tour down Horrible. <laughs>
2: well, like, but as I tiptoe and be very glad this For is your not an act. Actual-
0: more successful than you wrestler. <laughs> yeah. All right. So Nobody did to choose from. How do I decide? Um uh Matt Silver, Buddy Murphy, was always awesome to wrestle. He's a complete moron. Matt, if you're listening, you're a, you're a dumb bastard. But you're more successful than me, so bless. Um, but we were very different. Like, um, I'm old man, man, man. And my my routine is very sticky and it's very... Um, I do a lot of sort of grand emotional storytelling and stuff like that. Like, when it's not funny, it's usually, you know, powerful themes of good and evil and the darkness that lies within man's heart and all that sort of stuff. And he just, like, kicking guys real hard. So we would sort of come together and I could bring... Uh, a sort of a more nuanced psychology to a match. And he could bring athleticism to a competition that I couldn't hope to bring. And so together we ended up with like really hard hitting matches, cool moves, but that also had interesting stories and characters and uh, texture to it. So that was always awesome. Um, Mad Dog, McRae, who's another guy who started around my time, who's a, a mainstay at Rock, but has really only wrestled maybe once in N.C.W. history, which I think was the final Dragonfly where he, Mike Peterson, and I fought over the MCW title. Um, but he's, like, we've wrestled each other all over the world. Like, we wrestled in team together in Japan. Um, you know, he was my from um, death matchman. Let will just turn off messages so people stop. Fans <laughs> asking me to sign underwear. Uh, yeah, him. I think of all the guys who sort of have been in my environment and then become successful that I didn't wrestle, Robbie Eagles is probably that guy. Like, he's a guy who I wanted to get my hands on when he first came through. Because he's so little, I thought I look big and tough. Um, and now he's just gone from strength to strength to strength. And now it's like, now i got to line up to wrestle him. Whereas <laughs> when he was starting out, I would have been the aspirational match. Uh, so he's, he's like my, my white whale that I've never gotten.
1: Well, I think on this topic, a follow-up I want to ask is that moving forward, where do you see Australian wrestling going in terms of does it eventually become its own sort of self-sustainable territory where people will say i can make a real living in australia wrestling in the same way that they finally can in the uk of course they can in japan and in the us and those places can australia do that because it does feel like based on some of the names we've heard it's also at the moment even though it's peaking it's also a springboard to other places does it become its own real growing thing down the line
0: i don't know that it will ever be a territory like it was in the Jim Barnett days of the seventies and eighties. I think like, you know, to the point where if you lived in America, you'd be like, oh, my family and I are going to move to Australia for a year because I can make more money. I think, you know, we'd need to be drawing thousands and thousands to every show. And I think even those, the support Australian wrestling and particularly NCW gets is amazing. And I don't like to say support Because that always makes it feel like begging. Like, I don't say support Aussie wrestling. I say Aussie wrestling should provide you with a reason to open up your wallet. And if you don't, then screw us. Take your money elsewhere. That obligation is on us, not on the fans. We're an entertainment company. We're an industry. We're a sport. We're not a charity, okay? Um, And I think we've gotten to the point where you know, you can be here and it can be uh, a significant source of income and definitely a platform elsewhere. But I don't know, and it's a territory, you can make your name and you can make money. But as far as a, a territory where people would be like, like Japan's, I don't know. I think that's a, it's a bit of a jump and it might sort of require a shift in how Australian culture views its art and entertainment. Whereas, you know, we we love our sport. We'll get right behind our sport. We love our athletes beating other people. But I think as soon as wrestling came out and said, hey, we're a show, there was a sizable chunk of our fan base. And we're like, well, now I'm categorizing you like I categorize Australian cinema and music and artists in that you are second in my eyes because you're not American. So I don't know. To me, that's sort of the hazard. But I think where we're at and sort of spearheaded by MCW in particular is a place where, you know, it's a, a credible place people overseas see footage from our shows and they say that looks like a great show those are world-class athletes that's a place I want to wrestle and that's why we've seen the darlings and UK and American Indian wanting to come down here
1: could wrestling in Australia live in that space because that's an interesting point how you said when it shifted to sort of saying it's entertainment that some people turned away from it it's sort of a struggle of where wrestling fits sport and entertainment and Australia has two completely different cultures for those things The sporting culture in Australia compared to the arts culture, they're both very viable here, but they're both very separate. Mm -hmm. You've sort of tried taking it there. I want to talk about what you did a couple of years ago uh, in Hobart. The Dark Mofo Festival is a massive thing over there, um, really dark and strange and out there art. You did a wrestling show there. Was that sort of you wanting to sort of test the waters of moving it to that space? And also just what was that experience
0: like? Uh, as an experience, it was awesome. Um, Dark Mofo is one of the, for anyone who doesn't know this thing, it's one of the biggest arts festivals in the world. And it's uh, based out of, uh, now I'm going to figure out what Mona even stands for, Museum of New Art. <laughs> okay. um, and it's basically a millionaire just when I want a modern art museum and I'm going to do it in my terms. And so I think he invested a bunch of gambling money and he built this thing. It's like a James Bond villain base. It's this brass steel fortress on an island in the Bay. And it's just filled with, you know, uh, edgy art. Um, and so he runs this festival once a year where they do a bunch of, it's like the opposite of White Night in Melbourne where it's like, don't bring your kids. It's weird and dark and we're trying to be confrontational. So there's like an edge, lordy quality to it that feels a bit try-hard sometimes, but I love the attitude of just, you know, art being dangerous and confrontational. And I've sort of clumsily straddled the gulf between art and wrestling in the city for 15, 20 years anyway. So uh, I was approached by a collaborator of mine called Clem Basto, who's a journalist in Melbourne. And she was like, they're doing a thing and they, we're going to try and get wrestling on the card as an after party, but we've got to put something wild and violent out there. So we came up with the most violent show we could put on. Uh, it was a massive success; The whole place was packed. Uh, a man fainted during the uh, Deathmatch main event, which is a personal achievement for me. I think I was, I was really trying to court controversy with the show. I tried to make it sound as confrontational and dangerous and then everyone was like oh we love it that's great and i felt really disappointed like i failed to be confrontational and then Clem wrote an article in the guardian and i went in the comments section of it and there was my controversy of people condemning this and i went oh, oh my heart I'm- oh wait no no wait i wanted this reaction good be upset <laughs> <laughs> call us dumb uh it was awesome though they really took care of us uh everyone was really receptive to it uh yeah it was a good time
2: so how do you look at the entire change in the landscape? So when you started your career back in the day, that was maybe as a sideshow to people eating chicken wings in the All-Star Cafe to going to your final match where it's a Thornbury Theatre, chanting your name, thank you, crackers. Did you ever see, like, it would have been such a gradual change from what it was when you started to what it was like when you finished. How do you react to, to that? Because it's two very ends of the spectrum.
0: Yes, it is. Uh, All-Star was a weird animal because it was, of all the shows that have run out of Melbourne, it was the one that most sort of actively piggybacked off international interest because you could, you know, basically it was like a viewing party for Monday Night Raw, but you could see some live wrestling beforehand. So it sort of had that potted audience, uh, which got quite big uh, for a while there. But in general, it's, you know, things haven't been consistent. Like the really consistent thing in Melbourne wrestling has been me (laughs) rather than any, and I've outlived. All the acronyms, more or less, uh, that have come up over the years. But you know, when a when a show is running out of the same venue every month and it's a really good venue, you get a uh, consistency in audience that's really hard to find when we're back in the days of hopping around from venue to venue and trying to haul that continuity with you across suburban lines. Whereas now I had, you know, it's like 500 people a show. There's, you know, uh, at least 300 of the same people every time, and then new people and stuff. So it was like, I I couldn't have told that story 10 years earlier. People would have cared less because I would have had less tenure and I wouldn't have had um, an amazing talent like Lockie Hendricks to do it with. But I think, um, you know, until you have the capacity for that audience following a story, you can't tell that. And I don't think I would have, you know, even tried in a different environment. So it felt, and also I think the scene had come along and the talent had come along and I felt like, you know it was safe to take my eye off the ball a bit and it wouldn't all fall over whereas I'm kind of you know there's a lot of other talented people besides me doing this um you know trying to make this a great place for people to get involved in a you know, wonderful sport and make a you know a go at it but I did feel like I'd kind of been you know spinning plates and trying mm-hmm. to keep them all going at once and so I had nothing to do with wrestling for a month or two after my retirement and I think I was just like you know it's, like, it's okay I can die now
1: and in terms of the retirement and the in-ring career there were rumblings that you know you were preparing for a return in 2020 obviously 2020 for everyone stopped plans across the board is that still a chapter waiting to be written
0: Oh, yeah. I never thought I'd be gone forever. Like, even afterwards, I was jokingly calling it, you know, my first retirement. Stop. <laughs> so, second one's going to be even better than late. Third one. So I think um, it was It was never meant to be like that. I think it's. Um, it was, uh, but um, I got hit so hard in the head at the end of that match that it turned my work retirement into a shoot. <laughs> so, so I thought, you know, year, year and a half, That'll be enough to sort of honor the the care and investment that people put into my retirement because you yeah, know it was a big deal. Like looking out there and seeing the reaction and stuff. Like it's easy to you know it's easy to make people laugh. It's easy to make them boo. Um, it's harder to make them care. But it's, it's pretty hard to make them cry in wrestling. And to sort of see that people gave that much of debt about what had happened. I didn't want to immediately like four months later be like, ah, just kidding. I'm back. That's not what she <laughs> And then when I started trying to come back, that's when all the injuries started. To, uh, I realised how badly I'd been hurt in that last match. Um, and then through the rehabilitation of that, I then went on to obliterate my knee, and so that ruined it all. And then coming into 2020, I'm like, all right, maybe by the end of this year you know, I'll be good to go. And then the the world was destroyed by the black plague. So it's been, a, and I'm. I'm Terrified, I think every time I announce my return from retirement, there's like a disaster. And they started as just personal, but the last time I got stimming by a global pandemic, I'm almost scared to say I'm coming back in 2021 in case a meteor just hits the Thornbury (laughs) Theatre. I don't know, I'm going to anyway, I'm back in 2021. Damn the consequences
2: as we see these spaceships come in over (laughs) the horizon. (laughs) One thing that I guess has been the benefit, uh, for a lot of fans since you retired has been you jumping into the training role. Is there anyone that we should keep an eye in the future? Because I'm seeing on the socials like every Tuesday night, there is these hungry people, both men, women coming into the NCW Academy, working their butts off. And these guys are looking the goods. Is there anyone that you personally think that, Hey, keep an eye on such and such, or maybe watch, watch her a bit closer or watch him a bit closer because in a couple of years, you know, you currently watch them preheating an oven here. There'll be the full roast in a couple couple of years' time. Just so. On
0: the ground floor. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think before I talk about any of that, I can't not say how much better rookies are now than they were in my day. I think in terms of respect, effort, taking it seriously. Um, they've got a lot more reason to be hopeful, I think, because coming in now, you can kind of see a viable career path from I'm training in a shooting summertime. I'm wrestling in a ballroom in Thornbury. Holy crap, I'm at WrestleMania. How did this happen? Obviously, it's you know, thousands of dollars and hundreds and thousands of hours of work and labor and pain and suffering and luck on that journey. But it's now a viable career path where it just, it just wasn't when I was coming in. Um, and so I think that makes for a better generation of rookies and they're more respectful as well. They're certainly more respectful of my generation than my generation wasn't the one that came before me. But that was because they were all shit. You should have stepped aside. <laughs> um, not all, not all. Uh, you know who you are. Uh, but in terms of Academy favourites I have, um, everyone's high on Tony Malani. And, you know, if you've met him, you know why. He's just such a, a kind, hard-working, good person um, and very talented too. So I'm you know, a big fan of him. Uh, not as many people talk about Hector Jones, who I think is the, the sleeper hit of the Academy to come. He's got uh, mad, boggly eyes and a chip on his shoulder bigger than my giant head. So I think he'll <laughs> use that. To, you, know, you use that quite well. Um, very big on Skyler Cruz, who is one of the women coming up through the academy. I think she's um, loaded with attitude and stuff, and in personality and viciousness. When I really dig, but if I'm going to put over any up and comer in the Melbourne scene, uh, no one's going to get a bigger rub than uh, the mighty Snuff King, my brother Gore.
1: <laughs> okay, well, you've given us a look into the crystal ball of who we could expect to be at the top of the card I'm in a few on. years. Yeah. As we wrap things up here, it feels like we could talk for another two hours, but we'll save that for another episode. It's been an absolute pleasure, but for 2021, as shows are about to kick back off for Melbourne City Wrestling, Cracker Jack, what's your one prediction for 2021?
0: It's me. I'm coming back. Okay, here's the deal. I'm not ready to go now. I'm still, you know, my rehab for my knee kind of got stimmied by the fact that all the gyms were closed. And so I was trying to rehab it by just kicking sandbags along with Bastard HQ. Um, So I've got some work there, and I've got a couple of pretty significant legal hurdles to be able to overturn the rules of my retirement. So my lawyer, Colby Toggenberg, has been poring over the Legends contract to try and find a loophole. I've got a couple of ideas and hope to make an announcement on um, one of the soon-to-come MCW 2021 shows. So that is my prediction. I am going to come back to two functioning knees, uh, minimise brain damage, and I'm going to beat the crap out of everyone not as a nostalgia act but as a functioning integrated member of the modern roster because if i can't hang with the stars of today i don't deserve that spot and so that's that's my goal and that's my prediction for 2021 is coming back not just as a nostalgia act but as someone who can contribute in ring towards the next generation of wrestling in this country
2: I I am a little bit worried because, as you said, when you make predictions and bold statements, things happen. So I am looking ahead outside the window to see if there's anything coming on the horizon. Meteors, aliens, uh, sky-turning green, hamburgers start eating people. We don't know what will happen. But, uh, look, Crackers, it's been an absolute pleasure. As Simon said, look, we could talk to you forever and ever. And, you know, we barely even touched on some of your great rivalry, so we'll have to get you back on MCW-wide. It's been great to see what you've been doing in the MCW academy and i honestly mean that because there is you know once the full stop ends with crackerjack we'd hate to see your legacy stop there and the fact that you're mentoring so much young talent coming through which means that MCW and wrestling in general will still live on uh sponge off the knowledge of you for yes. generations yep. to come is great but man thank you so much for joining us on wide and uh hopefully we'll see you at the thornby theater
1: you will What an absolute honor to have the one and only Crackers on the show. We can't wait to see what's in store for 2021. And we can't wait to see what's coming up next for MCW Wired. We've got so much lined up. If you want to be a part of it, use the hashtag MCW Wired all across social media. Get your suggestions to us. Let us know who you want to see on the show. And also get involved and ask a question to your favorite MCW stars. And of course, subscribe to MCW Wired wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Stay in touch and get the episodes as they drop.
2: Yeah, 100%. Hashtag MCW Wide is the hashtag to use on all of the socials. Make sure you like, subscribe, do all that good stuff. And you can go back in our archives too. Listen to our chat with Lockie Hendricks, where he does talk about uh, what the Crackerjack match, and just Crackerjack himself meant to him. It's a really, really good yarn, but man, it was so good of Crackers to give us so much of his time. As Simon said, MCW homecoming. It is February 6th. Tickets are sold out, but you can check it out on MCW On Demand. Now that's going to go up live Monday, the 8th of February at 7 p.m. Melbourne time. So if you missed the show, if you, if you're one of those guys that haven't got tickets... You can watch the show later on demand, mcwondemand.com.au. But we will, if you are going to homecoming, we'll see you there and we'll be back for another big edition of MCW Wide. Stay tuned.